Nearly a century ago, Franklin Roosevelt pledged the New Deal in a time of massive unemployment, uncertainty, and fear. Stricken by a disease, stricken by a virus, FDR insisted that he would recover and prevail, and he believed America could as well. And he did, and we can as well. It's no secret President Joe Biden is an admirer of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his New Deal. President Roosevelt, or FDR, led the United States through the Depression and his New Deal redefined the relationship between the citizen and the federal government in America. In his first 100 days, he steered 16 major pieces of legislation through Congress while convincing the American public that they could both trust and rely on their government. Hello, this is Rear Vision on Radio National. I'm Annabelle Quince. So what could President Biden learn from FDR's first 100 days? How did he achieve this legislative feat? And could the Biden administration replicate it? FDR gained the presidency in 1933, in the midst of the worst depression the United States had ever experienced. At 10 o'clock on the morning of October 24th, the traditional bell sounded across the exchange. General Electric, 315... General Electric, 310. But by 11 o'clock, it was apparent that this was no ordinary day. This was to be Black Thursday. A constricting ripple of fear spread over the startled floor and to every corner of the nation. It began with the stock market crash of 1929, but soon spread across the whole economy. Tony Badger is a former professor of American history at Cambridge University. America had never been there before. It was the worst economic depression in American history, still is. It had spread from a stock market collapse and then pressure on the banking system to the complete slowdown of the American economy. The toxic germs of despair were pumped to every part of the body. The arteries of commerce were clogged with 5,000 bank failures. 45,000 miles of railroads fell into bankruptcy. Big business that didn't fail retrenched and contracted. More than half a million farms lost as farm prices fell 75%. They lost a third of the GDP within four years. Unemployment ran between 25% and 33% of the industrial population were unemployed. And a lot of the rest of the workers were working part-time. Agriculture, which constituted a third of the workforce, was, as it was in Australia, completely devastated. People were losing their homes, people were losing their farms, and most notably, just before Roosevelt came to power, people were losing their money in the banks, which were collapsing in the winter of 1932-1933. This is Robert Trout at our election headquarters in the newsroom in New York. The results of the 1932 election now appear to be certain. The ticket of Roosevelt and Garner has won a clear-cut majority over the Republican ticket of Hoover and Curtis. And so the United States has a new president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. President Hoover had not believed it was the role of the federal government to intervene in a market economy. And as the Depression deepened and unemployment rose, Hoover became increasingly unpopular. FDR, by contrast, ran on a platform of bold action, even if he didn't spell out exactly what action. Jonathan Alter is a journalist and the author of The Defining Moment, FDR's 100 Days and the Triumph of Hope. 
the most important speech that Roosevelt gave in the 1932 campaign was at a college called Oglethorpe University in Georgia, where Roosevelt spent a lot of time at the Warm Springs Rehabilitative Clinic, where he was trying to recover from polio. And he went to Oglethorpe and he said, what we need is bold, persistent experimentation. Take one method and try it. If it fails, try another. But above all, try something. This great nation will endure as it has endured. And will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And so he set out from the early hours of his presidency on a course of action and action now, as he described it in his famous inaugural address. You know, that speech is most remembered by history for the line, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And that was a nice bit of psychological uh, spirit boosting, but it really was kind of inspired nonsense because if you are hungry, if you don't know where you're going to sleep, if no one in your family has a job and unemployment was 25%, but because women weren't counted, it was really 50%. That's not fear itself that you're fearing. That's something real. And so the critical lines in the speech in terms of indicating what he was going to do was that he used that word action five times. And he said that he would put the country on a wartime footing if Congress didn't respond to his proposals, which Congress did. One of the things that really marked the New Deal was this idea of experimentation. Julia Azari, Associate Professor of Political Science at Marquette University. Once he was asked about his political philosophy and he responded and said he was a Christian and a Democrat, but he wasn't especially wed to any ideology, he tried different things and engaged in a lot of experimentation to figure out what sort of fixes worked. But what he did when he ran for president was he talked about the forgotten man. He talked about kind of rethinking whether the economy worked for people. And this carried into his rhetoric once he was president, really thinking about about what democracy could be. Offering people a new deal, that that wasn't just about the economy. It was about really rethinking kind of what people in a democratic society owe to each other and how we move forward in an industrial capitalist economy that's also a democratic political system. The day before Roosevelt took office, the American banking system all but collapsed. The banking crisis originated in the state of Michigan, and the governor of Michigan had to close the banks there. And then the disease of bank closing started to spread, and there were these terrible bank runs. You can remember seeing pictures of them in old movies where you know people line up desperate to get their last money out of the bank, and then many of them fail to do so, or they get some out and they stuff it under their mattress. It had literally collapsed in the sense that New York and Illinois had closed their banks, which essentially meant that the whole banking system was closed on the day that he took office. And so he formally closed the bank, declared a national bank holiday, and called Congress into special session to provide measures to reopen the banks. He didn't have any terribly clear-cut plans about how he planned to do that, but there were officials in the Treasury holdovers from the previous administration who worked desperately hard to provide the sort of 
legislation mechanisms whereby they could reopen safe banks. And much to everybody's surprise, Rezor, when, when he called the special session, the special session started, they only had one copy of the bill that was going to reopen the banks. And the House of Representatives passed it in 43 minutes. Uh, it took a bit longer in the Senate. The legislation passed that first day and is what encouraged Roosevelt then to keep Congress in the session to pass other pieces of legislation. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. My friends, I want to talk for a few minutes with the people of the United States about banking. After he's announced his bank rescue plan and it is rushed through Congress, he goes on the radio and he gives the first of his famous fireside chats. And in that speech, really the first time in history, a leader is talking to his people as if he's sitting in the living room with them, but in very calm terms. And he started his speech saying, my friends, he addressed them as my friends. And he said, you know, hoarding has become a terribly unfashionable pastime. It is possible that when the banks resume, a very few people who have not recovered from their fear may again begin withdrawal. Let me make it clear to you that the banks will take care of all needs. And it is my belief that hoarding during the past week has become an exceedingly unfashionable pastime. So as our banks reopen under our plan, take your money out from under the mattress and put it into the banks. And the same people who had been rushing to get their money out, they listened to Roosevelt, went to their bedrooms, took the money out from under the mattress and redeposited it. And that's real leadership, if you can get people to do that. And that stabilized the banking system without a federal takeover, a nationalization. At that time, progressives wanted Roosevelt to nationalize the banks. And Roosevelt instead used the bank rescue plan that came from the Hoover Treasury Department. It was a tremendous gamble because there was no plan B. If that appeal for confidence and for people to return their money to the banks not to keep on taking it out. If that had failed, there was no other plan and there would have been a complete economic meltdown. So it, it was in a way a close run thing. It was a, a gamble and it was in a way the ability of Roosevelt to convey a sense of confidence to the American people. This is Rear Vision. I'm Annabel Quince. And we're looking back at the first 100 days of the Roosevelt administration in 1933. After his success in Congress with the banking legislation, Roosevelt decided to keep Congress sitting and proceeded to introduce more and more pieces of legislation. So why did he choose to use the legislative process rather than executive orders? He didn't need to use executive orders. That was the key because he had the congressional majorities and congressional leaders of both parties who were willing to cooperate. So in that sense, he could rely on legislation and he could rely on relatively speedy legislation. That didn't mean that he he could simply dictate to Congress and what he was very successful at was adjusting. And so he accepted things that he didn't necessarily support. One of the most successful New Deal programs was the federal federal deposit guarantee for deposits in banks. And Roosevelt was opposed to that. He thought it was simply bailing out irresponsible bankers. But Congress insisted and Roosevelt went along with it. And it was one of the most successful and long-lasting pieces of New Deal legislation there is. 
So all sorts of things, massive public work spending, which he wasn't terribly keen on, aspects of industrial planning, which he had very undeveloped ideas about, all of these things, it was give and take. One thing I think that sometimes gets lost in appreciating how the American system works is that presidents can make policy through executive orders, through directing the different agencies in the executive branch to carry out laws in a certain way. And we've seen Joe Biden do a ton of that in the last two weeks. But in order to really make deep structural change, you do need the law. And that's dependent on Congress. And so it was incredibly important to be able to work with Congress and That is something that FDR did. So he was taking the role of kind of selling it to the public, but there was also a lot going on within political parties and other political actors in in Washington, D.C. The ideas he brought to the legislative table, where did the idea for those come from? Because as you said, he didn't have a necessarily have a coherent policy when he came into office. And so was he an ideas person or did he surround himself with advisors who were also incredibly interested in trying a whole lot of different things? It was the latter. And he created something when he was governor of New York a couple of years earlier called the Brain Trust. And these were very smart individuals he surrounded himself with. Roosevelt himself was described by uh, one of our great jurists, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., is having a second-class intellect, but a first-class temperament. And I think actually you could say the same thing about Joe Biden. So he was not an intellectual. He had not finished at the top of his class at Harvard. He had just gotten in there because everybody in his family went there. He had not done particularly well at law school. But he was not threatened by very bright people. And so he surrounded himself with bright, idealistic people who were also planners, and they came up with a lot of ideas, and he would often pit them against each other, assign two of them the same task, and then see which one came up with the better plan. And some of it came from a woman, Frances Perkins, who was the first woman to serve in the cabinet in American history. She was the Secretary of Labor. And she had worked with him in Albany, the capital of New York, you know, when he was governor. And she was constantly throwing out ideas, some of which Roosevelt wouldn't do at first. So she talked to him about Social Security to provide a benefit for the elderly and widows and orphans. And there was so much going on that Roosevelt said, you've got to build support for that. So it wasn't until 1935 that Social Security, which is the most important and popular social program that we have in the United States, it wasn't for a couple of years before Roosevelt was able to get that through. But a number of Francis Perkins's other ideas went through pretty quickly. And there are stories of, for instance, when they were first regulating Wall Street, a couple of smart young lawyers that just stayed up all night in a hotel room and they, they wrote a bill. There was a cartoon of Roosevelt saying to his secretary, Grace, take a law, like take a letter, you know, and he didn't really know how to write legislation himself, but he, he, he would throw out general ideas. You know, we need get young men working in our forests, doing conservation work, get it done. And then he would stay on people to make sure that it happened. He'd light a fire under them and then 
they wanted to make him happy, so they kept providing him with more and more legislation. And he said yes to most of it. So what were the key pieces of legislation? Because as you said, in the first 100 days, there were 16 pieces of major legislation that went through Congress. What were the main thrust of those pieces of legislation and how coherent were they when they went through or were they changed quite dramatically by the Congress? They certainly weren't terribly coherent. If there was one overriding theme, it was that they needed to stop the deflationary spiral whereby people cut prices and cut wages and took demand out of the economy. So in one way or another, Roosevelt wanted to raise the price level in the United States, which is one of the reasons why at various times he supported sort of quick fix inflationary measures. But there were recovery measures which involved considerable intervention in the economy through uh, industrial codes on the one hand and through contracts with farmers on the other. Those measures weren't necessarily very effective or long-lasting. The farm programs were, but the industrial programs were not. And what frequently happened was that Congress passed legislation which had various policy options. It's not clear from the way the legislation passed which of those options was necessarily going to be followed. It was up to the administration to sort of find out what worked there was simply a question of providing relief to the people who were unemployed. Here you are in a system which has almost no safety net for the poor and unemployed. And the Roosevelt administration gave money to the states, administered money to the states to provide for direct economic assistance to the unemployed. It also then launched a major public works program. The employment programs and the major public works programs are two of the long-lasting impacts of that 100 days period. And then it brought in reforms. So it reformed the stock exchange, reforms in terms of the banks, and the establishment of things like the Tennessee Valley Authority, a remarkable accession of power across state lines to develop a whole huge valley across seven states to provide flood control and power development and things like that. So you have this combination of long-term reform programs and short-term recovery programs in the same batch of those 16 pieces of legislation. But how was he able to do that? Does that say something about his particular political skills or did Congress become a different beast during those first 100 days? I'm just wondering how he politically was able to do that. There were large Democratic majorities in both the House and the Senate, which helped But in those days, there were very few party line votes and the Southern conservative Democrats were much more conservative than the Northern liberal Republicans. So sometimes he would put together his majorities with the help of Northern liberal Republicans. But at that time and well into the 1970s, many of the committees in Congress were chaired by Southern conservative Democrats, racists. And he had to deal with them. But he was very charming in person. And he also was able to communicate over the radio to mobilize the American people. And there was this sense that there was forward progress against the Depression. And the contrast with Hoover was so striking. You know, here was a president who's introducing a major piece of legislation practically every week. And, you know, he is 
first regulating Wall Street. I mean, the creation of our Securities and Exchange Commission didn't come until the following year, but they began in a preliminary way to regulate Wall Street. And he, you know, he went to the public and he said, look, we're moving from caveat emptor, let the buyer beware, to let the seller beware. And this, you know, might not have been popular on Wall Street, where he was considered a traitor to his class. But among the American public, it was enormously popular. And it was hard to challenge him, although he was much more challenged in the first 100 days than people think. After the banking bill, they had to lobby and push for legislation a couple of times. He had to threaten a veto. And some of what they did wasn't that smart in some cases, regulated things to a fare thee well. The National Industrial Recovery Act had these codes for every industry, what they could charge and what they could do to the point where strip clubs were regulated as to how many times a night strippers could take off their clothes. You know, <laughs> and, and this this was a pretty intrusive kind of government control of prices and ultimately of wages. And it didn't really work very well economically. But what it did do, the National Industrial Recovery Act, was it created a sense of common purpose in the United States. And Roosevelt was brilliant politically at that. They created a decal of a blue eagle. Practically every business put the decal in its shop window And underneath the decal was the legend, we do our part. Everybody felt like they were pulling in the same direction. Is there much debate about how successful those New Deal programs were in terms of getting America out of its economic crisis? There's a very considerable debate. A lot of economic historians and certainly the contemporary right argue that the New Deal not only failed to produce economic recovery, that it actually delayed recovery. The American economy recovered at a slower pace than, for instance, Western European countries because it basically priced people out of jobs. That's been a very powerful argument on the right. My own feeling is that the econometric argument is is very clear that Roosevelt, the first three or four years of the New Deal, saw the economy grow at a very considerable rate and basically recapture everything that it had lost between 1929 and 1933. The problem was that in 1936-37, Roosevelt cut spending and, in a sense, took away quite a few of those gains, and they had to get back to that policy in the lead-up to World War II. So I think, on the whole, the programs worked. The people who say that it delayed recovery basically assume that an austerity program, I just believe that that austerity package would have created a further, probably they would have lost a further third of GDP as a result of that. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. President. So are there similarities between 1933 and today? The main difference is that Biden isn't quite commanding the same kinds of majorities. He won office with about 51 percent of the vote. FDR had won with closer to 57 in 1932. He does not have the seats in the Senate. He does not really have the seats in the House. The Democrats control both of those chambers. 
but not by very much. And so you have a situation in which the Democratic majority is very bare, so you don't have any votes to spare in a purely majority sense. But also, you have two things that are different. And one is the way that the legislative filibuster has evolved. To make a long story short, you effectively now need 60 votes in the U.S. Senate to pass legislation. And this is, you don't actually need that many. You only need 50% plus one to pass. But the way that the legislative filibuster has evolved means that the informal norm is now that things need 60 votes to pass and that Republicans can use that filibuster to block legislation they don't like. The second thing that has changed is the way that the two parties deal with legislation they don't like. There have been moments in American politics in which, particularly on something like a relief bill in a pandemic and an economic collapse, in which legislators who look at a bill that they don't particularly like might try to actually move it closer to their preferred position in ways that could eventually lead to compromise. And this, I don't want to paint the past in too rosy of a light. You know, this often didn't succeed, but, you know, sometimes it did. Now, the two parties have very little incentive to cooperate with each other in Congress. And most Republicans in Congress have very limited political incentive to work with the Biden administration. Their constituents, for the most part, don't like Biden. They don't have any reason to hand him a win. They want to win control of Congress in 2022 in the next midterm election. To the extent that bipartisan compromises have been offered by the minority party, In Congress, they've been really far off from the position of the Democrats in terms of the numbers being offered, for example, for a COVID relief bill. So you have two parties that in theory should have some incentive to work together, but in practice, they really don't. And particularly given the the way that the philosophy of the Republican Party has evolved, this idea that when the government is giving out generous benefits, it's probably to people who don't deserve them. It's going to make your taxes go up. It's going to be wasteful. Those are all ideological talking points that have really taken hold. So that means that there's very little incentive for those legislators to cooperate on coming to any compromise on these bills. And again, the Republicans control 50 Senate seats out of 100 and very close to half of the seats in in the House. There's no time to start like today. So what I'm going to be doing, I'm going to start by keeping the promises I made to the American people long way to go. These are just executive actions. They are important, but we're going to need legislation for a lot of the things we're going to do. He certainly hit the ground running, and that sort of firestorm of executive orders shows that he intends to sort of an exercise the sort of leadership that Roosevelt did. But of course, the fact that he assumes that executive orders are the way to do it is an indication that it, that actually in the current political climate, getting action from Congress is a much more problematic thing than it was for Roosevelt. The plus, I think, is that clearly people need stuff done about the virus. And if he can effectively turn around the inadequate government response for the virus, then he's got something that will get him a lot of credit. And secondly, people don't seem to be too worried about spending. Republicans themselves seem to have given up worrying about spending and deficits. So if he comes up with stimulus packages, then there's a chance that he may be able to negotiate a comprehensive package. Similarly, on infrastructure spending, there is general bipartisan support for 
infrastructure spending. So if he can if he can tap into all of that, then he's got some hope, I think, of producing a successful legislative program. If Biden is able to have a hundred million inoculations, vaccinations in his first hundred days, that would give him success to build on. So if he in his first hundred days is seen as having gotten COVID under control, he will have the wind at his back, I believe. And you know, I might I could be wrong, but he'll be able to set himself up for major accomplishment in his second hundred days. You know, might not all take place before summer, but he has a shot here to be a very successful president. Jonathan Alter, author of The Defining Moment, FDR's 100 Days and the Triumph of Hope. My other guests, Julia Asari, Associate Professor of Political Science at Marquette University, and Tony Badger, former Professor of American History at Cambridge University. The sound engineer is Isabella Tropiano. I'm Annabel Quince, and this is Rear Vision on Radio National. <laughs>